Um, God, what we sang earlier was open the eyes of my heart, and so I'm simply going to ask that for all of us, myself included, open up the eyes of my heart, open up the ears of my heart. We want to see what you want to show us, want to hear what you want us to hear, and then we want to be the kind of people who have the courage and the uh, grace and your power inside of us to do what you've asked us to do so we can be the kind of people that we know you've designed us to be full of life and power that comes from God. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I did this a while ago, but I'm going to read some uh, entries from the column, Dear Miss Manners. Um, these actually were letters that were published this month in the St. Louis newspaper. I found them online. But uh, Miss Manners is like an expert in et etiquette. Etiquette being it's a code of behavior that delineates expectations for social behavior according to contemporary conventional norms within a society, social class, or group. So this will be, a couple of these things might help some of you in your uh, appropriate social behaviors. First one is this, Dear Miss Manners, have the etiquette standards changed regarding the correct use of a butter knife? I was taught to use the butter knife to transfer an appropriate amount of butter from the butter dish to my plate. Frequently, however, I see diners, and often my guests, buttering bread using the butter knife instead of their dinner knife. Also, is it now appropriate to convert a dinner roll into a mini sandwich? All right. <laughs> so I actually, my wife taught me this. I thought you could use the butter knife to butter whatever you wanted to, but you put a piece on your plate. And then, dear Miss, she responds back, gentle reader, even if the etiquette council had enough time on its hands to tinker with such matters, changing butter rules would probably not be high on its agenda. And then she goes on about what the proper use of a butter knife. All right, next one. Um, dear Miss Manners, last year my best friend who lives out of town gave me a kitchen gadget for a birthday gift. I appreciated it, but it was something I didn't want or need and was just taking up space in my kitchen, so I eventually got rid of it. Recently, she spent the night in my home during a weekend visit and wanted to prepare breakfast as a way of thanking me for hosting her. In the middle of cooking, she asked where the gadget was so she could use it. I came up with some pathetic excuse about leaving at my mother's house. We all know where liars go, so can you please give me a better answer than the story I came up with? And then she says, where? Where did they go? Miss Manor is no theologian, but she believes that it cannot be a place far from the people who use. I'm just being honest as an excuse to hurt others' feelings. So again, etiquette. All right, uh, two more. Dear Miss Manners, it seems I am one of a handful who thinks pies and cakes are cut differently. Help finish this debate. So if you want to know about that, I'll let you read the answer. The, you're supposed to cut pies and cakes differently. The end result is wedges, but you're supposed to do it differently. Now this one was actually in the paper this morning. I happened to read the paper. I'll read this one. Why must, dear Miss Manners, why must one say please with, may I, with quote, may I have a glass of water? Sounds like begging. It is begging. If I said pretty please, you'd know I was begging. I've always told my kids, don't say please, but always say thank you. Another child's mom makes them say please, and I say tell your mom that you were not aware I had to beg for water. Of course they say please, so the whole thing about it is that when is it appropriate to play please or thank you. So all of her, if, if some of you may need to read this column too, so I, I, I probably should have when I was a co uh, college student because my wife taught me uh, all kinds of manners that I probably still violate most of the rules today, but I do know the butter knife one. I do know that one, all right. Um, here's another one. Here's one I wrote, though. Um, goes into our talk for today. Dear Miss Manners, because, again, we're talking about what's appropriate, what's societally acceptable, what's normal. Dear Miss Manners, I didn't send this to her, so don't expect to see it in the paper. First of all, please, please, in light of the question I am asking, please do not, never divulge my identity to anyone under any circumstance. 
Secondly, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say, but my etiquette problem has to do with Jesus. And know that I'm a good friend of Jesus, a disciple of his, some would call me. Here's the problem. Sometimes, honestly, he just isn't all that nice. Sometimes his bluntness can seem, at least to me, a bit offensive. I wouldn't say he's sharp or harsh or mean. It's just that sometimes he asks people questions that are blunt, honest, direct, in a way that seem a bit outside of social norms. His questions put people on the spot in a way that I know makes them feel uncomfortable and sometimes a bit embarrassed. There's got to be a better, more polite, and nice way for him to do this. I'd like to help him out. <laughs> so my question is twofold. One, am I correct that societal norms dictate softening one's directness and honesty in such a way as to not unnecessarily increase the other's social discomfort? And question two, how might you suggest that I bring this up with him in such a way that he might hear me out, change his behavior, and possibly soften his questions to others? Um, yeah, I'm not mailing that in. I should mail it in and see if I get a response. But anyway, Jesus does violate. He violates social norms. He's a little bit blunt. He's direct. And he asks questions. And we're going to look at some passages today where he asks questions of people that are like, if you were the etiquette police next to him, you might think, oh, I don't know about that question, Jesus. Could you have said it differently? I've been doing a series from the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's called Seeing Jesus getting a fresh look at Jesus, trying to see who he is, and trying to challenge all of you, myself included, to look at Jesus through not a new lens, but the, the right lens, the, the lens of the Bible. Because um, sometimes our culture gets it all wrong, and this was one thing I'll just, I wasn't planning to share this, but I will. I was riding my bike around campus Thursday, Friday, and in that place uh, right out next to the Union where, is it Brother Jed, is that his name? You guys don't know who Brother Jed is, those of you older people. He's a street preacher that um, fire, hell, brimstone, uh, condemnation, total, my understanding, a spirit of Pharisee. Um, and he wasn't speaking, but his understudy was speaking. And, and uh, as he was speaking, I, I, I w and I was listening to the students respond to this guy, this respond to what I would call religious arrogance. And I, inside of my heart, I just felt like I, I, wanted, to sh I wanted to stand up and I didn't, I didn't stand up and take on Brother Jed. I'm not going to do that because um, I, I could take him easily. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to say that's not Jesus. So all the students that were haranguing Brother Ted or Brother Jed in his understudy, I wanted to say that's not Jesus. Please don't think that's Jesus. Because the Jesus in the Bible is not hateful, condemning, and finger-pointing. Yes, he's holy, but he's loving, and he's merciful. He's incredible. He's brilliant. And I thought, I want people to see who Jesus really is, and not who the culture has been taught that he is through wackos like that. Because some people, some of your friends, that's their impression of Christians and of Jesus. So, because Jesus, like I said, Jesus is not... He's not a finger-pointing, condemning, angry person. He's blunt, but he's explosive, he's fierce, he's focused, he's confrontational, controversial, supernatural. He's truthful, blunt, and disruptive. He's courageous enough to say what everyone else knows but won't say, but he's also sen sensitive, compassionate, and incredibly kind. He's wildly free and absolutely holy, full of truth, he's full of mercy. He, there's no one like him. And I want, I want 
I want to see that, and I want to understand that more, but I want everybody else to see that. That this is the most incredible person who's ever walked the earth and ever will walk the earth. So here's what we're going to do. There's three different scenarios in Mark chapter 9 and 10. Go to the next slide. And I'm just calling this, Jesus asked a few blunt questions. Three different scenarios where he asked some hard questions of people. And I want us to think about it, again, I've said this before, I want us to be the, I want you to put yourself in the position of the person being asked. Because I think when Jesus does talk to us, when he does speak to us, which I think he does in normal, everyday ways, sometimes his questions to us that we hear in our spirit from Jesus are a bit off-putting. We're not quite sure what to do with it. Or we're not, we don't know how to respond. So here we go. First one is this. The first story is a story of a boy who's demonized. The Bible says he's um, has all kinds of fits. Some people will think it's epilepsy, but the nature of the passage is it, it, it's more than that. There actually is the, the boy throws himself in the fire. The boy throws himself in the water. Obviously, there's a destructive spirit at work. So Jesus has been uh, somewhere else, and he's coming on into the crowd because the, the, the father and the demonized boy are over here, and there's arguing going on. And Jesus comes up and says, what's going on? And, they say, and, the, and this father says, I asked your disciples to cast this demon out of my boy, and they couldn't do it. And if you don't remember, but in the previous chapters, the disciples had been sent out, and they had done something. They had cast out demons. They had healed people of demonic influence. And again, this is weird meter stuff. It's a little bit weird. It's out, it's out there, but we believe that's how reality works. There's demonic influence in people's lives. So Jesus says, well, bring the boy to me. First, he kind of, he doesn't kind of, Jesus says about the disciples, oh, will you ever believe? He, he gets understandably like, why can't they do this? And he's not, Jesus, again, he's not contemptuous. He's not like sarcastic. He's not cynical like we would get. And so the father comes to Jesus. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. The father says, he explains what's happening. The boy, he's always trying to throw himself in the fire. I mean, I, I'm a dad. I have a small child. I've had small children. My youngest is 12. But I, I can't imagine what it would be like if I saw my, one of my kids destroying themselves almost out of their control. And like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And, and, he, and then the father finally says to Jesus, so... If you can do anything, will you do something? And maybe he had been exasperated by his disciples' lack of ability to do it. So when he says, if you can do anything, do it. And Jesus says back, this is the question. I, was, Jesus says to the man, if I can. Kind of like, again, I'm not, I know, we don't know about Jesus' tone of voice, but he know, we know he was never sarcastic or demeaning. But Jesus says, if I can, if I can, if I can do it. And, and immediately the man realizes, uh, uh, I mean, Jesus put him on the spot because Jesus could have just said, yeah, I'll heal the boy. But he says to the man, what, what do you mean if I can? And the man says, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, help me. I, I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. I, I, I want to believe. And, and when I read this story the first time earlier this week, I mean, I read it before, but this week, I thought, how many times have I got to the point where I may be a little bit frustrated that I don't see God doing in my life what I want him to do? And I might say to him, to God, somewhat exasperatedly, well, if you can do something about this situation, I would really appreciate it. Because I've got to the point where, whether it's an issue in my marriage, with my kids, with my money, with my habits, with my future, with my job, whatever, I'm just kind of thinking, well, I've asked him this before, and it hasn't, nothing's changed. 
And so I say to Jesus, well, if you can do something. And I need to hear back from Jesus almost that corrective, direct question, like, what do you mean if I can? Don't you believe that I can? And Jesus didn't say that to put that man in, a, in his place. He did put him on the spot like he wants to put me on the spot sometimes and you on the spot sometimes. He wants to realize when I say, if you can, that's coming from a place that lacks faith. It coming from a place of doubt and fear. It's not coming out of the part of my heart that God is renewing. And I need some, I, there are times you and I both need to be reminded by Jesus that our faith is not what it could be. Again, not in any kind of condemning, guilt-driven, I'm angry at you kind of way, but Jesus will ask you those blunt questions at times when you're, at, when you're doubting him. And you, we think, well, he just needs to be, you know, kid gloves at that moment. Sometimes kid gloves is not what we need. Sometimes we need some, Jesus directly saying to us, what do you mean if I can? Where's that coming from in you? But the man cries out, no, 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 I, help me in my unbelief, help me. And he responds, going to a deeper place of his heart, and he cries out, just will you please heal my boy? And Jesus says that Jesus touched the boy, and the boy was healed. It's normal. But it had that little interaction going on there where Jesus had to challenge the question. Next story. Jesus and the disciples, this is also in Mark chapter 9. Uh, the disciples, they were walking somewhere. I can't remember where they were going from point A to point B, and this is after some of these events had happened. And the Bible tells us the disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest. And we're assuming they were doing it and they thought they were outside of the earshot of Jesus. Because they were arguing, you know, who's his favorite, who's the best, who's the best disciple, who cast out the most demons last week, I did, I did, who did this? <laughs> so they, this was was happening while they were walking. They traveled everywhere by foot. They didn't, you know, didn't have cars or whatever. So they get there, and then Jesus, I don't know if they're you know, hanging out together, and then Jesus asked this question. What were you discussing? Well, I heard you guys discussing something. What were you discussing? Cricket, cricket. No, really, what were you guys discussing? And the Bible said they said nothing. Because in their heads they were thinking, busted. Because Jesus knew exactly what was going on inside their conversation. So why did he ask? It's like, well, he, I mean, he must have caught wind of what they were talking about. It probably disheartened him. Social norms, societal norms would be, I just let it go, Jesus. They've maybe had a hard day. But no, he... What were we discussing? He didn't say, I heard what you were saying. You were arguing about greatness. You guys need to learn this. Sometimes his questions are meant to invite us to confession. Well, what's going on? What were you discussing? And the Bible literally says they said nothing because they knew they were caught. Now, and then Jesus went on to say to them, if you want to be great, he gets a little child. If you want to be great, you've got to become like little children. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the servant. These silly arguments about who's best, better, or greatest have to stop, Jesus is saying. 
So he could have let it go. He could have just lectured them, but he asked them first because he wanted them to be reflective about, well, you really want to know what we're discussing because we're embarrassed to tell you. And these are his disciples, like his good friends. These are the people he's going to entrust the future of the world to. Now you might think, well, how does that fit today? Well, one of the things that I feel strongly about as uh, sometimes in the church world, whether it's the church you go to, campus ministry you're a part of or whatever, we tend to try to figure out who's best, who's better. Um, I don't think Exodus is better than any church in town. I believe in what we're doing, absolutely believe in what we're doing. But I don't believe we're better or worse than any church in town. I, I gave up the game years ago of trying to compete with other churches as to who's, who's doing the most in town for God. That's a waste of our time. That's not what that, that's, it, it, whenever I start thinking like that, like the other day I was reading something and uh, it was about some church that had built a new building, da-da-da-da-da, and I think in my spirit I was thinking, oh, I wish we could be like that. And I felt like Jesus said to me, well, wait, what, what are you discussing or what are you thinking right now? Well, I'm comparing myself, Jesus, to that other church. Oh, yeah, you don't, I shouldn't be doing that. I, I, sometimes Jesus will bring things up to you when you're playing that game of comparison to other Christians. I'm better, I'm worse than them, I'm bigger, smaller, faster, whatever. But be ready for Jesus to ask you those kind of questions because it's pretty uncomfortable when you're put on the spot like that from Jesus. What were you discussing? Because he knows what you're thinking, he knows what's going on. And again, he could have let it slide with the disciples. He could have said, I'm understanding of them. But no, he asked them a question that put them in a spot where they're like, oh, that's not what we want to be about. Last one of the stories I'm going to share from the scripture today is from Mark chapter 10. And this is, uh, if you've been around Exodus at all, it's perhaps one of my favorite Bible stories because I could see myself. Again, I want you to see yourself not as an as a observer. I want you to see yourself as Bartimaeus right now. So Bartimaeus was a blind man. And in those days, in that culture, uh, I mean, blindness is horrible, period. But in those days, in that culture, blindness was basically a sentence, a life sentence to be a beggar the rest of your life. There was nothing else you could do but beg. Unless your family took care of you or whatever, but there was no social services, there was no, you know, there was no Hebrew Braille Bibles, but you were stuck at begging, and you were basically uh, hopeless, begging. Uh, your life had nothing to look forward to other than what you might get the next day begging so you could eat. You were not even welcome in the, in the worship of the Jewish synagogue because you were seen as being somehow defective. So isolated, hopeless, um, desperate, whatever word you want to tag with that. And it says Jesus is coming into town near Jericho, and it says Bartimaeus, and we know from the other Gospels he's with some other blind men, but Bartimaeus, it says he cried out, which in the Bible, the language there, is like the top of his lungs. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare anybody. If you're sleeping, I should have you to wake up. <laughs> and it says the people around him told him to be quiet because he was being disruptive. You need to read Miss Manners, Mr. Bartimaeus. That's disruptive. <laughs> 
what it said, and I love this about Bartimaeus. It says he yelled all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And it says Jesus walked over to Bartimaeus, this hopeless, desperate, my life will never change person. Because Jesus did hear it. And then when he says, bring the man to me, the people who told Bartimaeus to shut up, they're like, oh, 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 wait a minute. Now he wants you. Go, go, go. You know, they're changing their tune like we always do. And he walks up to Bartimaeus and he asks this question that I think is, could rank as what seemingly is the, one of the dumbest questions somebody could ask a blind person. Jesus looks at Bartimaeus and says, what do you want me to do for you? And the crowd off the side says, well, duh, Jesus, what do you think he wants? Duh is a Hebrew word, not really. But because when you read that, it's like, well, what, do you, what do you think he wants, Jesus? I mean, what kind of question is that? He's blind. He was shouting for you. What do you think he wants, Jesus? Are you trying to embarrass him? Are you stupid, Jesus? Do you not see that he's blind? Or, 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 is there a really smart, brilliant, compassionate thought behind why Jesus is asking that question? And I'm going to say that's the case. Because sometimes Jesus asks us that question because he wants us to verbalize what we know our desperate need is. Let me say that again. Sometimes Jesus asks us that question because he knows sometimes we need to be able to, we need to verbalize to God what is it that you know won't change unless God's power intervenes in your life. You know, he's not, think about your own life. What is it in your life that you know that maybe has, has maybe it's a place inside of you that feels desperate, hopeless, broken. And you're like, that is never going to change. I'm stuck there. What is it in your life that you know, unless the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit invades that part of you or that part of that situation, that you know it won't change apart from supernatural intervention? That's what Jesus is asking here. He's not asking to embarrass the man. He's asking, like he asks us, what, what is it that you really need from me? Because there's something about Jesus that he wants us to know and express our deepest desires and desperate hopes and passions. And somehow that seems to kick in the process of healing. Somehow expressing honestly and desperately our situation kicks in the power. It, it, it's part of a function of faith that Jesus wants from us. Faith doesn't mean your life's all together. Faith means you know where you're broken. That's part of faith, and you say that to God. And, and this is one of those uh, situations, too, where I, I, I have one more mismanners. So this, this is related to this one. They're mismanners. I'm, it's me again. I'm the friend of Jesus. Haven't heard back from you about my previous question, how to help Jesus soften when he asks certain kinds of questions, but eager to hear back from you. But he, now, here's my next question. I'm a bit put off about how some people respond to Jesus, Specifically those who are, shall we call them, desperate people. People who are broken, needy, hopeless, and pitiful. People who, frankly, just aren't as normal as the rest of us. Now, before you lecture me about having more empathy for those kind of people, at least hear me out. I can understand people wanting Jesus to help them. I really do. 
Jesus is incredible and powerful in so many ways, but I just think there are more socially appropriate ways to ask for help. At least I think there should be. There have even been a few instances where these people cry out to Jesus. And I use that word because that's the exact word the father of the demonic boy said. He cried out to Jesus, help me in my unbelief. Bartimaeus, the word cried out. He cried out to Jesus. When these people cry out to Jesus, they shout, they scream very loudly and quite unrestrained, and so, so disruptive to others who are around them. Seems a bit undignified to me. Sometimes we have told them to quiet down, but it usually doesn't help. They are intent on getting the attention of Jesus, even if it means violating multiple social and religious norms. I think they could find the time to quietly approach Jesus or at least send a request to Jesus, but shouting, crying out, screaming seems just a bit offensive to me. Please help. See, because the word here, the word cry out, which happens with the father of the demonic boy, which happens with Bartimaeus, and it happens other times in the Gospels when people had desperate need. And I usually don't say this, but the Greek word is the word kradzo. And even just how it sounds, it's one of those words that, if you, for those of you who are English people, it's an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like the sound that comes out of your mouth when you say it. Kradzo. It's, it's, uh, it was likened to a sound of a crow. A croak, a crow, a crow croaking. It was seen as offensive when somebody talked that or yelled that way. Because it comes from an unrestrained part of your being. But it seems like whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, but many times in the Gospels with Jesus, people crodzoed to Jesus. They cried out to him. They croaked. They, they, were, they were unrestrained because they understood how desperate they really were for the supernatural power of Jesus in their lives. And if you're like me, I, you know, I grew up in a very non, you may not be this way, I grew up in a non-expressive home and a non-expressive church where anything outside of social norms was a mismanners violation big time. Now, I'm not saying we should all gather in church and croak out loud our needs to God. But I'm also not saying that's inappropriate. I'm also not saying there may be times where you feel so desperate for what God, you want to see God do in your life that it's appropriate to be unrestrained toward God. Maybe on your own, maybe with others. And if somebody like is around that, somebody is like that around you, please don't tell them to get back into Miss Manders' point of view. Because sometimes they need to be that way. So my challenge, and this not only for those of you who may feel like you're desperate from all of us, because we're all being those places. Every one of us are Bartimaeus. Every one of us are Bartimaeus. We all have things in our lives, marriages, habits, family, money, whatever, where we're like, I, I really want to see Jesus work. My challenge is to cry out to Jesus. And don't feel embarrassed. Even Sometimes we're embarrassed even if we're by ourselves. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I... Sometimes when I'm at home, I don't do it a lot, but sometimes when I feel, I'll get on my hands and knees and put my face in the ground and kind of say, Jesus, I need, I'm embarrassed when I'm by myself. Like, is somebody going to walk in and think I'm weird? Even though I have the door locked. I don't lock the door when I pray. So I'm gonna, so. But you know what I'm saying? We, 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 have these, we have these notions of what is the proper way to approach God and certain polite tones and postures, but the Bible is full of impolite tones and postures toward Jesus. Not, not harsh or mean, 
So not only does Jesus ask these very direct questions, but it seems like what he wants from people is these very honest, desperate answers. The disciples, they said nothing. What were you discussing? Mm. But when he asked the desperate people what they needed, they cried out. So it seems like what's being shown here is maybe the best response to Jesus, the faith, the power, the life is from those who understand their desperation before God. And the disciples did, over time, understand that's what Jesus wanted from them. He wanted them to understand their own brokenness and their need for Jesus and the healing power of Jesus. But we, it's hard for us sometimes to get there. So I don't know what your brokenness is. I don't know where your desperation is. I know where mine is. I just, I just met with a group of guys this week, and I asked, the question I asked was, um, if Jesus were to ask you the question, what do you need me, what do you want me to do for you, what would you say? So what would you say? If Jesus were to look at you and say, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, what is it I can do for you that you know unless I do it, unless God does it in your life, that will not change in your own personality, in your heart, or in your situation? What is it? I think Jesus gets ecstatic when we answer that question. He's ecstatic when we answer that question. It's hard for us to answer that question because it feels so desperate, so broken, so not put together. And aren't we, shouldn't we appear to be put together? It's like, says who? Says the Pharisees. They're the ones that say you should appear put together. So I encourage you, vulnerability with your friends, who, are, who follow Jesus, vulnerability with one another. And if you haven't been around Exodus long enough, that's kind of the culture we want, is that vulnerability before others, before Jesus. So uh, let me pray. Let me ask this. If, I'm going to ask some of you to stand here in a second so I can pray for you, but um, here's who I'm asking to stand. Some of you might say right now, I feel a real strong kinship with Bartimaeus and or the father of the demonic boy, whether it's a situation I see in somebody else's life that I really want Jesus to work in, like the, the, the boy's father, or whether I'm like Bartimaeus, and I would say I, I have a desperate need that I really want Jesus to hear and I want to tell him and I want to see him work in my life and I have a I have a cry out in my spirit that I want to put before God on behalf of someone else like this man's son or behalf of myself I'm not going to ask you to say what that is or anything but I'm going to ask if that's you would just stand up right now if you would say I, I I'm I can I can understand Bartimaeus or I can understand the father of this demonic boy And um, if you're standing up right now, I'm going to ask you to just look up forward at me for a second. This is what I want to say. I wanna, do not feel any embarrassment in telling Jesus exactly what you want to tell him. Be direct. Be as blunt as Jesus is with you because he wants to hear that from you. I don't care if you're driving alone in a car and you want to yell out your prayers to God in that way. Cry out. That's, that's not inappropriate. Sometimes you need to push outside of the bounds of appropriateness because that's where faith grows, outside of comfort, all right? Go ahead and close your eyes, and I'll pray for you. Jesus, we, um, 
we so much want to see you work in our lives. We want to see you work in the lives of those we love. And it, for those who are standing right now would say, I, I can understand the desperation of crying out to Jesus. I can understand the desperation and even of the father who wasn't sure if you could do anything. And we cry out with that as, I do believe, help me in my belief, help my, help my faith grow bigger. And these people that are standing are saying that right now to you, Jesus. They're, they're either saying, help my faith grow, and or they're saying, have mercy on me and bring healing to my soul. So for those who are standing, Jesus, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them, that Jesus, you would meet them with your kind, compassionate, direct, honest, disruptive, merciful self. And you would have conversations with them about how you want their healing to proceed. And um, would they, God, Jesus, give them ears to hear. We, we know you want us to have conversations like that with you. And we know you have the power to heal, so would you do that in their lives? Go ahead and sit down. And for all of us, every single one of us, when we hit those Bartimaeus moments or the father of the demonic boy moments, which we all will hit in life, would we have the same cry-out spirit to you, Jesus? Because you're incredible, compassionate, powerful, forgiving, merciful, tender, direct, honest, disruptive. You're funny, you're witty, Jesus. You're intelligent, you're brilliant, you're powerful. You're everything we've always wanted in a Messiah. You're everything we've always wanted in a king. Would you give us the courage and grace to bow down to you, the king? Um, the only, only one we've always been waiting for. And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. We finish every Sunday.